Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil to do and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil, to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not, not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. And the second reading today comes from John chapter 19, verses 28 to 37. And if you've got one of the Bibles from up the back, that starts on page 962. So John chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs, since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. Well, good morning, everyone. An unfamiliar face at this point of the service. If we haven't met, my name's Scott, uh, and it's not lost on me the privilege of spending a few minutes with you now uh, unpacking God's word that we've just heard. 
I wonder if you realise that you live in a culture saturated with acronyms. Have a look on the screen. Familiar words, yet they're not words. Each of those familiar words are acronyms. Uh, Qantas. Oh, I got a fly to Sydney on Monday. I'm going on Qantas because that's better than Rex, apparently. No, you're not flying Qantas. You're flying with Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services, an acronym that represents something else. I wonder if you can spot on the screen that which represents a self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Or for those of you baby boomers that uh, followed the great space race in the 60s, of course, you recognise the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, For those of you that go to church here, you probably say this sentence all the time without thinking about it. Oh yeah, I go to OEC, it's an FIEC church. (laughs) Two acronyms in one. Uh, we, we are so used to using these acronyms in our language that I don't think we even realise that they're there. Now, I think this love of the condensed word has gone way too far. Uh, I'm always trying to get my teenagers to call someone and speak to them as a human rather than their preferred mode of conversation, which is to send 45 messages to, to decide one simple thing. Uh, next one for us, Joel. They communicate like this. Uh, bottom of the screen in blue, OMG, Roffle, LOL, NVM, BFF4E is actually code for, oh my gosh, I'm rolling around on the floor laughing, I'm laughing out loud, never mind, we're best friends forever, forever. <laughs> this is going way too far. That's not an acronym, that's just teen nonsense. But back to acronyms, they're incredibly powerful. If I can have the next one on the screen, uh, I'm a teacher by day. And of course, to start the academic year appropriately, we as a staff go in and we need to refresh how we would respond, God forbid, to someone uh, in our midst, a child or a colleague who might need some life-saving intervention before the professionals can arrive. And so we roll through this acronym, which is probably familiar to many of you, Doctors A, B, C and D, an acronym that reminds us of the sequence of life-saving intervention that we can give in that moment of crisis. Uh, It's a powerful tool. And because we're teachers and we're very nerdy and we like tests and being right, it's interesting to sit up the back of the room and watch all the teachers want to answer the question what it stands for. I love that moment. I won't go through it for you now. It means something about just call all the doctors in the room, flick on the ABC and have a listen because your job here is done. But (laughs) that's what I take away. But, But acronyms are powerful, aren't they? Uh, They provide a structure and a framework. They are a memory tool, and with this particular one, designed to, in a time of crisis, when life seems like it's unravelling, that we would have a framework that would prompt deeper thought and truth that can make sense of that moment which seems to be spiralling out of control. Now, you may not know it, but we just had an acrostic poem read to us. It leaps off the page. Psalm 34 is only one of nine acrostic psalms out of 150. So it's quite rare. Here it is on the screen, Joel. You see it a mile away, don't you? There it is. Psalm 34, clearly an an acronym, yeah? No, clearly not. Uh, The the marvel and the beauty of Psalm 34, written in Hebrew, uh, an ancient and now no longer spoken language, is that each verse starts with the successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, we don't see it straight away because we, of course, are Western English speakers and the translation into our English loses 
that framework and acrostic poetic nature of this psalm. But once we have it pointed out for us, we need to recognise something. David, the author, is doing something incredibly deliberate here. He's writing this psalm in particular to form, that, to form that framework that would prompt a deeper thought and memory tool in those original hearers. It was largely an orally spoken psalm, so you would hear it first, and then ultimately in those who would read it in the original language. And, and I, I make a point of this, Joel, you can just give us the blank screen now if you want, to remind us that when we come to the psalms, oftentimes we need to work really hard. I don't know if, if you're a bit like me. I sometimes find the Psalms quite confusing, uh, difficult to access. They seem very ancient, perhaps a bit cyclical and repetitive. And that's a warning to us that there are deep truths to be mined here, but we need to be careful and recognize that there's work to be done. If we're dealing with this ancient acrostic poem, we need to recognize that there's more going on than just reading what's sometimes referred to as one of the songs of the Psalms. So with that in mind, I want to, I want to state something here and I, I hope not to cause offence and I'll cycle back to it at the end. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that the Psalm is about me. I read the Psalm, I think it's directly about me. Uh, why do we do this? It's written in the first person. Uh, so oftentimes you read a psalm and there's these beautiful phrases, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. Right? Some trust in chariots, but I trust in the name of the Lord my God. There's that first, per and, we, and we, we go, that's me. And in that moment when we're having a difficult day, all your waves have crashed over me. It's like, it's, like it's, it's me, I'm in the psalm. Now, we've got to be cautious here. Because it's not written about me, but it's written for me. See the difference? It's not written about me. The psalm is written for me. And so we've got to be careful that we ask ourselves the prior question, well, who was it about so that I can then learn how it's for me? And I want to do a little bit of that with us this morning. Additionally, the psalms are written as poems or songs. And when you're dealing with poems and songs... We're dealing with a particular form of communication. Don't songs have tremendous power? There's something in our DNA, I think, as human beings, that common experience. Most of us have a favourite song. Uh, romantic couples have their song. Or how about the modern funeral? How do you go? I'm usually okay till you get to that wretched slideshow where those beautiful pictures of the one we've lost play to their favourite song. Uh, I sat in this very building not long ago as a friend we were farewelling his wife far too soon and they played time after time Cindy Lauper. I've never had a connection to that song. It's now playing in Bunnings and I need to just take a moment as tears start forming in my eyes as you connect through song to powerful moments in life. That's what we do don't we? But I want to suggest too when we're dealing with songs even more powerfully than that if you have a favourite song and you go and research, why was that song written by the author? What was going on in their life that caused them to pen those words and write that tune? Now, this is where you start to really get to the heart of what a song's all about. In 1992, a song was written that got three Grammy Awards by a British artist called Eric Clapton. It was called Tears in Heaven. 
Would you know my name? Ready? Someone's going to go. If I saw you in... There you go. Someone's heard it. Uh, of, often played at a funeral. It's a, it's a beautiful, haunting song. But the power in the song really hits home when you realize that he wrote that when his four-year-old son died falling from a 53rd floor of an apartment building. And Eric, in his grief, penned that tune to help him process. And then you read the line, would you hold my hand? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? And and all of us now are moved, aren't we? Because we suddenly see, we don't impose where I'm at. We see where he was at and why he wrote those words. See what I'm doing? The uniqueness of Psalm 34 is this. We're going to have a look at the lyrics in a moment. But we get an insight into what David was experiencing because we're told what he was going through in another book of the Bible, 1 Samuel chapters 20 and 21. And if we're going to understand what he really wanted us to get from his song, we've got to remember what he was going through as he then wrote the song. Because if we can get that, the full weight of his song will land with us this morning. So we need to tell the story. I'm not going to read it, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you, because most of you will know it. David, shepherd boy, set aside as an unlikely future king. Overlooked, doesn't get to go to war with the Philistines. Shows up anyway. Young David sees God's army Israel cowering before the terrifying presence of the Philistine army, led by their great warrior Goliath. And as he looks around, as King Saul is cowering and Israel is a mess, he says one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that stands against the army of the Lord? What a dude. And he picks up his stone and he walks out and he drops that giant. He takes out the sword of Goliath and chops off his head. And in that moment, they sing of David, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands it starts to build around David and of course Saul starts to be overcome with jealousy and he moves toward eradicating David and and David's life is one of this tense relationship with the anointed king and eventually Saul tries to take David's life and David David in the background is forming this close bond with Saul's eldest son Jonathan you know the story they become great mates and David says hey Jono your old man's trying to knock me off And Jonathan says, mate, I think it's going to be okay. And he said, it's really not. That spear nearly got me. And Jonathan says, all right, well, let's see how it goes. It's a new moon celebration soon. Normally have two nights of feasting. Don't come the first night. And if dad's chill, stay away the second night. And if he's still cool with that, I reckon you're in the clear. So David goes and hides. Jono goes to the first night. King Saul's reasonable. Second night, King Saul's like, where's David? He's supposed to be here. Maybe he was ceremonially unclean. Jono says, oh, he had to go visit some family in Bethlehem. Saul loses it, hurls his spear at his own son in anger and says, David must die. Jonathan escapes, goes out to the field, and um, he's got a little signal. Remember that famous moment, shooting the arrows? If I call to the servant, boy, it's gone beyond you. David, that's a sign it's not going to go well. Shoots the arrow, it's gone beyond. David comes out of hiding. Jonah says, yeah, you were right, mate. It's not going to go well. Dad's after you. You've got to flee. And they weep. There's this moment where David weeps and he runs. In that moment, he runs from home. He runs from his place at the king's table. He runs from his best mate, 
Uh, there's a little side note. It says they both, both wept, but David wept the most. And he's on the run and he runs two hours. He's left Michelle, his wife, as well. And he runs two hours and he comes to a priestly town called Nob. And he goes in and he says to the priest, Ahimelech, mate, have you got anything I can eat? And he says, no, but there's some bread that's offered here to the Lord. David says, can I have that? And he says, well, are you ceremonially okay? He says, yeah, I'm down. He says, well, you can eat that if you want. It's ceremonial bread. It's pretty hard and it's not going to be great. And David says, I'll take it. And then David says, have you got, got any weapons? He goes, we've got that sword of Goliath here. Do you want it? And David's like, yeah, because I don't even have a sword and that's the greatest in the land. And as he takes these two items, uh, he sees out the corner of his eye this guy called Doeg, who's one of Saul's insiders. And he knows that Doeg's seen this kindly priest, Ahimelech, assist David as he runs from the king. And he runs from there knowing that he's probably put the life of Ahimelech and all the priests in danger. And it turns out to be true later on, a horrible event in the Bible. And can you imagine the weight on David at the moment? He's got, he's got bread as a symbol of God's presence with him. And he's got the sword as a reminder of his greatest victory when he, when he stands strong for God. And he's running for his life. And he gets about 30 k's down the road to a city of Gath. And here we're in Gentile territory, the very people he's defeated. And, he go, and, and as he spends some time in Gath, he, he's hiding in plain sight. But he becomes very nervous because we're told that the king of Gath, Ashish, recognises him. And by this stage in 1 Samuel, as I read, we see that David becomes terrified because those words, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, are being whispered amongst the Gentiles. And he becomes afraid that he's going to get sold out back to Saul. And verse 12, we read, David took that to heart and became very afraid of King Ashish. So he pretended to be insane. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man's crazy, King Ashish said. Why'd you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this guy to act crazy around me? Is he going to come into my house? And David's plot works. He escapes as all of them think he's finally lost his mind. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his fathers and his whole family heard, they went down and joined him in the cave. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt or discontent rallied around David and he became their leader. There were about 400 of them. David's demise has been great. Can you picture him huddled in the cave? Can you picture his latest moments as a madman with spit entangled in his beard? That's what prompted him to write Psalm 34. Now we're ready to see what he would say. But before we see what he would say, 30 seconds, the person sitting next to you, what would you say. Go.
right, we'll cut those 30 seconds out of my total talk time, Ed, and I'm still under time. I wonder if you said what you'd actually say or if you'd said you'd like to think what you might have said if you said those things. What a pickle. How many of your lives have just unraveled and all you got left is a reputation in tatters and you're wondering where is God? Listen to what David says in that moment. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I'll boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. Their faces will never be ashamed. Why did David say that? It's clear. His most recent face has been so utterly shameful as he acted the madman. And he says, when God looks at me, he sees not the face of a madman. And I am never ashamed before a God who loves me. What's David doing? This is extraordinary, isn't it? He had every right to say a very different psalm of lament. Where is God? I don't think he's there. But wow, he goes straight to preaching truth about God. And remember, it's an acrostic poem. So he's deliberately structuring for people in times of great strife and need a way to remember truth about God that gets our thinking right first so that our feelings can follow. Teenagers, what are you told today? Just listen to your feelings because you've got to be true to what you feel in moments of crisis and that way you'll feel your way through it. It's rubbish. Let's get our thinking right because we know truth about God that in those moments that we're tempted to think incorrectly about him, let's get it right so that our feelings and emotions fall into line underneath truth about God. That's what David does here. And he, I just love that line about his face. His face has been ashamed. And yet through the eyes of God for who he really is, his face will never be ashamed. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. How good is David's praise of his king in this moment? The next shift in the psalm shifts from truth about God to instruction on what it means to fear God. If you scanned the next few verses, the word fear jumps out more than any other word. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Can you picture them in the cave, wondering what's outside? And David says, don't worry, God's outside. He's encamped around those who fear him and rescues them. And here's our line from this morning. Didn't Lydia do a great job? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience God's goodness in this moment of strife, says David. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? But what does it mean to fear the Lord? It's an interesting word because these men are very fearful, aren't they? They are a crew that are down on their luck. David is living in fear and they all fear being snuffed out. And so he says, well, I'm going to take that word and I'm going to apply it to God. And it's a dangerous way to do it, I think. Verse 9, you are his holy ones, fear the Lord. 
for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. He gives an illustration to help us understand fear. So let's picture it now. Young lions lack food and go hungry. Why do young lions lack food and go hungry? They're lions. They win. No, young lions go hungry because the Lord of their pride, the alpha lion, keeps them at bay. He is a selfish, antelope-gorging king. And the young lions dare not approach because he will kill them. So they are forced to fear and stay away and be distant. That's why they go hungry. David says to fear the Lord is nothing like that. Don't mistake a young lion's fear of alpha male for fearing the Lord who loves you. So I will teach you to fear the Lord, says David. Look at verse 11. So come, children, listen to me. It's not like that. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he throws out a carrot. Who's someone who desires life? Imagine the hands going up in the cave. Right? Um, and hang on, who would, who would love a long life and enjoy what's good? It's, it's this rhetoric, he's got him on the hook, I do. He says the secret to that is correct fear of the Lord. Verse 13, this is what it means to fear the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. To fear the Lord is to speak rightly about him to yourself and to others. What are we tempted to do? To speak poorly of God when life is like this and poorly to others. Have you been around those people or have you fallen into that as that person? When life is tough, would the volume of your speech simply be everything that's wrong and I'm doubting if God is there? That's what we do, isn't it? That is to speak deceitfully of God, whereas the encouragement from David, which is extraordinary, is no, no, start with God and his promises and character. Focus on that. Make that the volume of your speech. Turn away from evil. Do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And finally, the last movement in the phrase pushes us toward trusting a redeeming Lord from verse 15. Verse 15 shifts now to a future focus. And let's pick it up from verse 18, if you're still there in your Bibles. David reminds his followers that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Let's pause there with me for a sec. We're nearly done. We're nearly at like the last letter of the acrostic pole. John, as we had read, uh, as he wrote his gospel, the fourth of the gospels, as he sees Jesus dead on the cross, chooses to include this verse from Psalm 34 in his gospel, doesn't he? As he sees Jesus, the soldiers come out intending to break the legs to expediate death, see that he's already dead, and they don't break his legs. They put a spear in his side. And John makes comment 
in his gospel and links to Psalm 34 in that moment. And we've got to ask ourselves, why does John do that? Three thoughts as we close. Why would John do that as he observed Jesus' death? My first thought, I think John had actioned the acrostic purpose of Psalm 34. He knew the Psalms. He'd worked hard. It's likely that he had made Psalm 34 one of the ones that he knew. That was the purpose that David wrote it for, yeah? And as he watches Jesus on the cross, I can't help but think that when he saw the legs not break, it triggered that part of the acrostic where he remembers the psalm and God's promise to David. And he's moved to put it in his gospel. I think that's probably the first reason that kicks in. The second thing, he tells us why he put it in. So we probably need to listen to John. He tells us, he says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. None of his bones would be broken and they looked upon the one that he had pierced. He includes two there. So he tells us why he put it there. Now, did he just put it there as a little tiny proof that see what was said in a cave in ancient Israel actually happened for Jesus on the cross and you've got to make the link between the two? Yes, but not just that. Here is confirmation of the fulfillment of Psalm 34 being actioned on the son of David as he died on a cross for mankind. Absolutely. But more than that, so that the scripture would be fulfilled means that so the entirety of God's promise to mankind would be fulfilled in the saving work of Jesus on the cross is what John means there. So what he's really saying is that as we read Psalm 34, we must remember that the promise that was for David in the cave was ultimately a pattern for the coming Messiah who would be son of David. The promise was fulfilled in the Messiah as a guarantee for all who take refuge in him, not just those in the cave. When John saw Jesus died, he was witnessing the perfect David redeeming mankind by dying in their place. Now we see the power of the psalm, don't we? The promises contained in Psalm 34 are from God to David, fulfilled in Jesus, for you. From God to David, fulfilled in Jesus, for you. David walked out of the cave to face his earthly enemies. Jesus walked out of the grave defeating your greatest enemy, sin and judgment before a holy God. Jesus' body was broken to take that punishment, to buy you back so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The last verse of Psalm 34 is the gospel. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him, will not be punished. See, the Psalms may not be about you, but when we unpack them, we see that they are most certainly for you. All who take refuge in him will not be punished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our life will, if not already, spiral out of control. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you fulfilled the pattern that David started 
and that in you, as you walked out of that grave, you secured for us a guarantee that come what may, our life is eternally secure with you. That one day when our feeble bodies go in the ground, we will wake in glory and on that last day we'll be raised forevermore because we have taken refuge in you, our redeeming King. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you have done on our behalf. We offer our lives once more to you in this coming week and beyond. Amen.